You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. So on Wednesday nights, we are working our way through the book of Ezekiel. And let me just give you a peek behind the curtain for a moment, okay? As a, a pastor who studies and, and, and teaches and preaches the Word, Ezekiel is a very difficult book to preach through. <laughs> it is really hard. Uh, but it's fascinating and it's compelling. And so I've enjoyed the study. I've enjoyed the challenge. Uh, but but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging book to work your way through. For example, my plan tonight was to start in chapter 17, because we left off in chapter 16 last week, start in chapter 17 and cover about five or six chapters, kind of one big chunk. Uh, And that that was my plan, to kind of move us along, because it's a long, uh, long book. Well, that plan went by the wayside. We're only covering one chapter tonight. There's just so much in chapter 17. I mean, there's so much there. I just couldn't skip over it, and so... We're going to slow down and look at chapter 17 because I didn't want to. I wanted to. I wanted to do justice to this chapter, but I also wanted to do justice to the next chapter, chapter 18, very important chapter. Uh, and so, anyway, so we're just doing chapter 17 tonight, and I've titled uh, the uh, sermon tonight "Kings and Kingdoms." That's what this chapter is ultimately about: kings and kingdoms, and the, the sovereign God who is over them all. So just to kind of reorient you to the book, if, if you haven't been here for a time or just kind of get you uh, back on the same page with, with uh, where we are in the book, there's an outline there. This is a very basic, very broad five-part outline. Uh, the prophet's call, a message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, the numbers there are the chapter numbers. So chapters 4 through 24 are all about this message that God has through the prophet Ezekiel for the the people of Jerusalem and Judah. So that's what we're talking about tonight. We're right in the middle of of that section. And then in chapters 25 through 32, there are some messages from God through Ezekiel for foreign nations. And then in chapters 33 through 39, there's a message after the fall of Jerusalem. A lot of what we're talking about now is for for seeing or predicting the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, We'll get to a section uh, where God speaks to his people after the fall of Jerusalem. And and then in chapter or part 5, there's a vision of restoration, chapters 40 through 48. Some fascinating stuff uh, in there. But here's a summary. If you want a kind of a one-sentence summary as to what the book of Ezekiel is about, I like this summary. From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. That's what this book is about in a nutshell. And don't miss that last part. The, the, the overarching theme of the book of Ezekiel is the, our God is the Lord. He, he's the one that deserves your worship and your adoration and your obedience. And so that's the, the, the message we see over and over again in this book. Now... Uh, let, let's read chapter 17, a little bit of it, and then we'll back up, and I'll give you a little bit of historical background. Then we'll 
kind of dive into the chapter and, and break it down. But just to kind of give you a feel for what we're talking about tonight. Look in chapter 17, Ezekiel 17, verse 1. The little heading in my Bible says, Parable of two eagles and a vine. So that's a pretty good description of this chapter. It's a parable about two eagles and a vine. And you say, well, how are we going to talk about that for uh, 35, 40 minutes? Well, there's a lot here, so let's, let's just look at it. Uh, the parable of two eagles and a vine. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel talking. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God. A great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He brought, broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine and its branches turned toward him. And its roots remained where it stood, so it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was, verse 7, another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him, shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull it up or pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? Okay, so what in the world is that all about? Well, the second half of chapter 17, God interprets the parable or explains the parable. So we're going to get to some of that. But to understand this chapter well, I need to give you some historical background. I've shared some of this with you before during this study, but it's important to kind of keep in your mind. Uh, if, if you read the book of 2 Kings, you read the book of 2 Chronicles, you see that the people of God, uh, and a lot of the focus in those books is on the southern kingdom, the, the nation of Judah, the, the people of God, the Jews, had turned their back on the one true God. There were some exceptions, but for the most part, they were on a downward trajectory, spiritually speaking. They were worshiping false gods, worshiping idols, worshiping the pagan gods of their um, Gentile neighbors, and they as a nation were, again, in a downward, moral, uh, spiritual spiral. And God sent prophets throughout their history to warn them, to call them to repentance, to call them to turn back to the one true God. But by and large, they did not listen to the prophets. In fact, they killed some of them, martyred some of the prophets for telling them the truth of God And so there came a moment where God said, enough, enough, I'm going to send another nation, the nation of Babylon, to overthrow my people, to punish them as an act of judgment against their idolatry, against their pagan worships. So that's God's plan. It's as if he picks up Babylon like a sword to mete out justice on his people who did not listen to him. And the, the, the punishment came uh, really uh, over the course of four different waves of Babylonian um, oppression. The first wave in 605 B.C. Uh, happened when Nebuchadnezzar, you've heard of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he marches into Jerusalem 
And he doesn't destroy it at this time. He just goes into the temple and takes all the temple treasures, all of the furnishings, all of the, the, the different parts of the temple. He took those treasures with him. He also took some Jews captive with him. That was 605 B.C. That was the first wave of the Babylonians being used as an instrument of judgment against the Jews. The second wave came in 597 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar again marched on Jerusalem, took many Judeans, including the royal family, back to Babylon. This is probably when Ezekiel was taken to Babylon. He was a priest, and, and, and a large number of Jews were taken back to Babylon, and they were forced to, to leave their homeland and uh, build a new life in the nation of Babylon under uh, Babylonian captivity. And that's the setting of the book of Ezekiel. The Jews are in captivity. They're far from home. And God raises up Ezekiel to, 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 to speak to his people during this captivity. But there was a third wave when the Babylonians came again against the Jews. Uh, the Jews who were left in Judah, now this is important, we're going to come back to this, revolted against Babylon in 587 B.C. All right, And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came again and burned Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took even more captives back with them to Babylon. So the third wave was devastating. I mean, they, they just raised uh, Jerusalem. They, they brought it down to the ground, the temples, the walls, the buildings. That's why in the book of Ezra, you see Jews returning to rebuild the temple. In the book of Nehemiah, you see Jews returning to rebuild the walls around the city because they had been uh, torn down by the Babylonians. And there was a, a, another wave, a fourth wave, uh, where the Babylonians came again and deported more Jews in 582 B.C. So everybody getting the picture here? God says to his people, you've gone far enough. You're worshiping false gods. You're, you're ignoring my word. You are rejecting my prophets. And so I'm sending judgment. Judgment is coming through the Babylonian Empire. And this judgment came through four different devastating waves. You might call these waves tsunamis because God used them to just overwhelm and overthrow his people. Again, as an act of judgment against their rebellion. Uh, by the time it was all said and done, Jeremiah 52, 28-30 records, there were 4,600 people total taken, probably dealing just with men in that number. And so if you add women and children, uh, scholars believe there were somewhere between 14 and 18,000 Jews who were taken from their homeland and deported and taken into captivity in Babylon. So kind of keep all that historical narrative in your mind because... Uh, we need to understand the context in which Ezekiel was preaching. Now, Ezekiel preached or prophesied between 593 and 571 B.C. during the Babylonian captivity. His ministry took place uh, seven years before the temple was destroyed, and it lasted until 15 years after the temple was destroyed. So in our, in our text tonight, this is before the temple was destroyed. And if you remember the four waves... Okay, This is between wave 2 and 3. Wave 3 was when they destroyed the temple. All right, This is before wave 3. This is between wave 2 and wave 3. And Ezekiel is preaching to the people and uh, really predicting what is coming. The, the next wave of judgment that is coming uh, from God uh, through the instrumentality of the Babylonian 
uh, Empire. So that's, that's when this, this passage, chapter 17, is taking place between the second and the third wave of the Babylonians. Everybody got that? Everybody with me so far? Okay, lots well, of historical background, but, but it's important. Now, let me just narrow the focus even a little bit more to give you the, 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 the setting here. Uh, Jehoiakim was the son of King Josiah. Now, Josiah was a bright spot uh, among the nation of Judah. He's one of the last kings, wasn't the last, but one of the last kings. And he led them to some revival and some reforms. He was kind of a bright spot. But after Josiah passed off the scene, things went back to the way they were. And Jehoiakim was the, was the son of King Josiah. And he rebelled against the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar came to overthrow him. Um, and then Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, died. Um, and his son Jehoiakim, so from Kim to Ken, uh, Jehoiakim reigned in his place. He was evil. He was bad news. And he reigned for a grand total of three months. All right? So Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came to take care of that. You don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar when the Babylonians control the, the world. Um, but then his son becomes king in his place. He was evil, and he reigned for three months. And so in 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came and took Jehoiakim, the evil three-month ruler, took him as a prisoner, took him back to Babylon. Again, probably the time Ezekiel was taken from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar named the next king to replace Jehoiakim. Okay? The next king was named Madaniah and Nebuchadnezzar changed his name, which they were apt to do to kind of show their control. And he said, you're not going to be uh, Madaniah anymore. Your name is Zedekiah. And he was intended to be a Babylonian vassal king. Here's what that means. He had very limited authority. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to leave you here to rule and reign in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And, and you can deal with provincial matters. But I'm the boss. Okay, I'm the boss. You're my puppet king. You're a, you're a vassal king. But you do have a measure of authority here. So listen, uh, Zedekiah, if you just do what I tell you to do, it's going to be fine. Your people will be fine. Your city will be fine. Your temple will be fine. If you'll just listen to Nebuchadnezzar, obey me, then you can continue on as a people, and, and things are going to turn out okay for you. Now, quick word about Zedekiah, this king that was named uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he was the third son of Josiah. Okay, Third son of Josiah. He was the uncle of um, Jehoiakim, who was the three-month wicked king who was taken into captivity. Are you all with me right now? Okay. Charts. We need charts. Get a good study Bible. Look at the charts because it can get uh, confusing. But Zedekiah was the last king of Judah in the Old Testament. Last king of Judah. Zedekiah. Um, you might say the last fully human king of the Jews um, was King Zedekiah. So that, that's kind of the setting. You read about this whole thing in 1 Kings chapter 24. And just to kind of remind you again of where we are, Nebuchadnezzar said, Zedekiah, third son of Josiah, you're the king in Judah. You're the leader of Jerusalem. Just do what I tell you to do. Everything will be fine. Everybody got that? Now, that brings us back to Ezekiel chapter 17, okay, to understand what's going on with this riddle this parable, the Bible says, of two eagles 
and a vine. Now I want to kind of walk you through this passage under four different headings. First of all, the riddle shared. We talked about this already, or we read it together already. Verses 1 through 10, there are two eagles and one vine. Notice there uh, in verse 3, it says, A great eagle with great wings, long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of his young twigs and carried it to a land of trade, set it in a city of merchants. So there's this picture of this, uh, of this great tree, this great cedar tree, and an eagle comes, breaks off the top, and takes the top back with him. That's to set your mind running to what we're talking about here. And then there is another eagle in verse 7, another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him. Okay, so two, two eagles, all right, one, one vine that had been planted there, and the, the vine begins to bend towards the second eagle. Okay, now what in the world is going on here? All right, what, what is happening? What does this all mean? Well, well, fortunately, God tells us, starting in verse 11. So look there in verse 11 of chapter 17. The word of the Lord came to me, say now to the, to the rebellious house, talking to the Jews, do you not know what these things mean? And I can almost imagine the Jews listening saying, no, we don't know what this means. There's eagles and vines and cedars and we have no idea. What does it mean, right? Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring, made him a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might humble and not lift itself up, and keep his covenant that it might stand. So God's explaining the first eagle is Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, The tree, the cedar, represents the Jews. And uh, the eagle comes, takes the top of the, the cedar tree, and takes it back. To where it's from, takes it back to Babylon. And uh, the Bible says, This is the king of Babylon. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And notice there, uh, he gives them the details found in 1 Kings 24. Nebuchadnezzar allowed Zedekiah to continue to be the king under his rule, under his umbrella. So the first great eagle in verses 1 through 4 is Nebuchadnezzar and his conquest of Judah. All right? That's who the first eagle is. Represents. And notice in verse 5, he took, the, he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. So he, he plants a new vine, which, which becomes the, the, the remaining Jews in the land. Uh, he placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig. It sprouted, became a low spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, towards Nebuchadnezzar. Its roots remained where it stood, so it became a vine, produced branches, and put out boughs. So the picture here is God took some Jews back to, I mean, God, Nebuchadnezzar took some Jews back to Babylon, but he left some Jews there and left Zedekiah to rule over them and, and let them know if you'll do what I tell you, you will flourish as a nation, as a people. Okay? So that's eagle number one. Now, what about eagle? Uh, well, what about the vine? The vine. Uh, look in. Um, look in verse thirteen. He took one of the royal offspring, made him a covenant with him, putting him under oath, chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might humble and not lift itself up, and keep his covenant that that might that, that might stand. So this is a picture of the vine that Nebuchadnezzar planted. The vine is this. 
Nebuchadnezzar left King Zedekiah in Judah and intended that they flourish as a vassal state of Babylon. That's the vine. All right? Verses 5 and 6 explained in the second half of the chapter. Well, who's the second great eagle? Well, look in verse 7. There was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. Who is this eagle? Fast forward to verse 15. It says, He, Zedekiah, the, Jew, the Jewish king, rebelled against him, Nebuchadnezzar, by sending his ambassadors to where? Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? So, so Nebuchadnezzar says, Zedekiah, you're the king, you're in control, you're under my authority, but I'll leave you here to, to, to rule and reign if you'll just... If you'll just obey me. Well, at some point, Zedekiah said, you know what, I'm tired of obeying Nebuchadnezzar. I want to get some help from Egypt. Egypt will help me to throw off this oppression and this this rule. And so instead of bending towards the first great eagle, he began to bend the other direction. Um, Look what it says there um, in verse 7. It says, the vine bent its roots toward him, the second great eagle, and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. And so, here's this vine, the, the Jewish people, and instead of bending their vines toward Nebuchadnezzar, who was the boss, they begin to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and bend towards the king of Egypt. So if you look there in your notes, the second great eagle is the Egyptian king, and we know historically him to be Hophra, who Zedekiah turned to for help to throw off Babylonian rule. So that's the, that's the riddle explained, all right? One eagle's Nebuchadnezzar, the other one's Egypt, the vine is, is, is the, the nation of Israel. And instead of obeying Nebuchadnezzar and being profitable in the land, they rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and began to bend their vine towards the Egyptian king. So the question is how that turned out for the Jews. How that turned out for Zedekiah? Not well. Nebuchadnezzar got word and in 587 he came. 587, 586... Destroy the city, burn down the walls, destroy the temple, um, poke Zedekiah's eyes out and took him back into captivity. <laughs> Did not go well, right? Because Zedekiah led the Jews to rebel against the great king Nebuchadnezzar. So that's the riddle explained. Now, what's the, what's the big picture here? What, what, what is God trying to communicate about Eagles and vines and kings and nations and the Jews and their current plight being in captivity. Well, look in verse 16. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, talking about him despising the, the, the agreement with, with Nebuchadnezzar, whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war, when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. So it's not going to turn out good for Zedekiah. Not going to turn out good for the Jews. So even if Pharaoh tries to help him, Pharaoh's not more powerful than the Babylonian Empire. Uh, but then fast forward down to verse 22. God continues to talk about kingdoms. And look what it says in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off the topmost of its young twigs. A tender one, I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. God here is saying, 
my Jews, my, my people, my Jewish people, my nation, they're going to be devastated by the Babylonians. It's going to be awful. But I will not let them be completely destroyed. He says, their eye, like the first eagle took a sprig. He says, I'm going to take a sprig. I'm going to plant it and do something great through my nation. So if you look there in your notes, the sprig that God himself will take is the kingdom God will build through his Messiah. Notice there are no eagles involved here. It's just God doing it. God building his kingdom through his people who eventually send a Messiah through his people who would lead Forever and ever and ever. So the sprig is the kingdom God will build through his Messiah. Now you say, Pastor Wade, how do we know this sprig rep- represents the kingdom of God? Well, keep reading. He says, I will plant it on a high lofty mountain. And then verse 23, on the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring uh, low the high tree and make the high the low tree. Dry up the green tree. Make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I've spoken. I will do it. If you're reading about that description of the kingdom God's going to plant and build, you might have heard something kind of familiar. Did you notice what he said there about birds dwelling in the branches of this tree that's going to grow? Did that sound familiar to you? Well, hold your place, but turn to Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, we read about kingdom parables. Jesus shares uh, lots of different parables here to describe what the kingdom of God is like. And look what uh, Jesus says about the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, becomes a tree, so the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Talking about the kingdom of God that, is, that, is, that came into fruition through Jesus the King. The kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom he's talking about over in Matthew chapter 17. Hey, real quick primer on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus in the hearts of people. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you're part of the kingdom of God. Amen? You're you're a kingdom citizen, right? You're part of that kingdom. And, And this kingdom that grows and grows and grows, and all these different birds come to find rest and shelter, is a picture of the kingdom of God growing to the very ends of the earth, And people from every tribe and tongue coming to find rest in the Messiah, rest in King Jesus. Pretty cool, right? So, back to Ezekiel 17. God's saying it's going to be bad. You rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. You thought Pharaoh Hophra could help you. He can't help you. Nebuchadnezzar is going to devastate you, but I'm not done with my people. I'm going to do something specific to, to replant them so they can grow and flourish and build a great kingdom. This is a prophecy of God building a kingdom through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Directly the work of God. Now, number four, very quickly, let's talk about some lessons from the riddle. Hopefully this will tie it all together and we'll be through. Lessons from the riddle. Now, now you see why I only ch- covered one chapter tonight. What are some lessons we need to walk away from as we've studied 
eagles and vine and cedar trees and, twi- and you know twigs and uh, sprigs and all that. What, what do we need to learn from this? Let me give you four quick things. Number one, when God sends his discipline, like he did on the, the Jews, when God sends his discipline, humbly submit and turn back to him. So the Bible is, is clear. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this, that when we are children of God, when we begin to go in the wrong direction, God, as an expression of his love, will discipline you. That means he will cause or allow hard things to happen to get your attention because he loves you, right? And he wants to get your attention so you'll stop going the wrong way and get back on the right path. Got it? Anybody here ever been disciplined by God? Do you know that you were going the wrong direction and, and God did something to get your attention? My hand's raised. That has certainly happened in my life. And, and it's my conviction that when God is disciplining you, when you go through something hard and God's getting your attention, it will be accompanied by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you'll know, you'll know, hey, God's dealing with an issue in my heart. He's dealing with an issue in my life. He's, he's wanting me to get right with him. And again, God's discipline is not just God up in the sky being mean. It's God being a loving Heavenly Father. Right? It's the same reason I discipline my kids if I find them playing in the road. They're playing in the road and they ignore me. And I say, don't play in the road. If they continue to try to play in the road, I want to discipline them to get their attention so they don't go play in the road and get run over. Right? I have their best interest at heart. I love them. That's why I discipline them as a father. And that's why God disciplines us. So God was disciplining his people. He used the Babylonians to do it. And Zedekiah, instead of saying, you know what? We, we, we've blown it. We have been worshiping idols. We've been ignoring the prophets of God. And uh, God's gotten our attention. I mean, he sent another nation to overthrow us and take thousands into captivity. And so, God, I get it. We've been unfaithful. We've been wrong. And so, I want to, as the king, I want to lead the people to repent and turn back to you and say, we are sorry, God. We're sorry we've gone the wrong direction. We've, we're sorry we've turned our back to you. We want to be right with you. We want to worship you. We want to obey you. And, and, and God, would you, would you help us in our, our distress? We need you. God, we turn to you. God, we worship you alone. That should have been the response of Zedekiah and the people. But what does Zedekiah do? Instead of humbly submitting to God's discipline, he said, I'm going to figure my way out of this one. I'm going to call. I'm going to call Hophra. Now they didn't have phones back then, you know that. But yeah, I'm going to call Hophra, and uh, he's a he's a king too, and he's got a pretty good army. So I bet you Hophra can get me off the hook with with Nebuchadnezzar, and if he'll help me, then then we can I can lead my people to freedom, right? But this discipline was of God. This discipline was of God. They weren't going to get out of it like that. And so, and listen to me. Back in the the parable in chapter 17. Instead of, instead of the, the vine bending towards God, it began to bend towards Pharaoh for help. They began to trust in Pharaoh instead of turning to God in repentance. And, and the Bible is very clear on this. In fact, um, I'll show you one. Turn to 2 Chronicles 36. show you one really quick example of, of, of how bad this was. 2 Chronicles 36. And it's neat to see how the Bible kind of fits together in different places. But 2 Chronicles 36 is about uh, Judah's decline. And in verse 11, listen to what the Bible says. 
Second Chronicles 36, 11. That's the last chapter in Second Chronicles, by the way, right before Ezra. Second Chronicles 36, verse 11. Zedekiah, okay, our king, vassal king, was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Watch this. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah, another prophet, preaching truth. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against, uh, rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against uh, turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. See what's happening here? Zedekiah, instead of repentance, turning toward God in brokenness, he rebels against God. He continues to rebel against God and goes to Egypt for help, and it turned out badly for him. So, let's learn the lesson, all right? We find ourselves, began to mosey down the wrong path, doing the wrong thing, right? Walking away from God's commandments and God's expectations for our lives when we, when we begin to do that and God lovingly graciously intersects us with discipline to get our attention so we get back on the right road let's don't bow up and say I'll get out of this problem myself I don't need God I'll deal with this trouble on my own no we should humble ourselves and say God I get it I was wrong. I repent. I want to be right with you. I turn to you. And God, help me with these consequences, but I turn to you in the midst of this discipline. So lesson number one, when God sends his discipline, humbly submit and turn back to him. Don't be like Zedekiah. Okay? I got that? Number two, praise God for his faithfulness. There are so many moments in the history of Israel where their, where their behavior was so wicked and egregious, God would have been well within his moral rights to completely destroy them. Right? I'm done. And just completely destroy the Jews. But he doesn't. Even though he sends judgment against them, again to get their attention... He's always preserving a remnant of people, isn't he? He's always keeping the Jews together. And when it looks bleak, like, okay, the Jews are done. This is over. I mean, their city has been destroyed. Thousands are in Babylon. They'll never be a kingdom again. They'll never be a nation again. I mean, it's over for the Jews. When it looks like it's over, God continues this work of preservation. He, he, he continues to hold the Jewish people together. And you might ask the question, why does God do that? Why does he send judgment, but he keeps this, this remnant? He, this, why does he keep this preserve, uh, uh, persevering grace up? Because he made a promise to Abraham. Remember? Abraham, I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. Your son's going to have sons. Through your descendants, I'll build a great nation. And I'm going to give you a land in which to dwell. Your, your descendants will have a, a promised land in which to dwell. And through your descendants, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the peoples on the face of the earth. That's a messianic prophecy. Jesus died for the sins of the world. So that if anybody from any tribe or tongue, if anybody repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ, they can be saved. Amen? We can preach the message of the gospel in, in Fort Walton Beach and... If people respond in repentance and faith, they can be saved in Fort Walton Beach. Can I get an amen? We can preach this message in Kampala, Uganda. 
And if we preach the message of the gospel and people respond in repentance and faith, they will be saved and so on and so forth. All over the world, people can be saved because Jesus died for the sins of the world. So, if God allowed the Jews to cease to exist, if he allowed them to be completely destroyed, he could not keep that promise to Abraham that through his descendants all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because the Messiah hadn't come yet, right? So listen, even though God sends devastating judgment through the Babylonian Empire, he's graciously preserving the Jews so that one day he can send the Messiah through the Jews, listen, for you and for me. This preservation is not just some ancient history. This is God overseeing human history to bring about redemption for you and for me. Isn't that good news? And so when you read a passage like Ezekiel 17, and it's, there's some really hard stuff in it, just remind yourself that God is faithful. Even though the Jews were faithless, God was faithful and preserved them so that one day he could send a Messiah named Jesus. There's more I can say about that, but let's, let's go on to the next one. Number, uh, number three. I think I told you there are four. There's just three. Number three. Rejoice in the growth of the kingdom of God. Rejoice in the growth of the kingdom of God. There are eagles here and vines bending towards the eagles and all of that happening. But I, I just love, I love what God does in verse 22 of chapter 17. I myself... Notice here the, the initiative of God. I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar. I will set it out. I will break off the topmost of its young twigs and tender one. I myself, he's being emphatic here, I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. Then you see the verses about it growing and the birds coming to rest in its branches, uh, shelter in its branches. Again, there's a picture of the kingdom of God. And exactly what God said would happen has happened. Think about how small the beginnings were for the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and was resurrected and ascended back to the Father, how many followers were gathered in his name? Do you anybody remember? 120 in the upper room. Remember their upper room praying before Pentecost? 120? That's not a... You might look at the, the, the uh, ministry of Jesus. Three years and 120 folks... Gathered in his name? Like, was that a failure? What, I mean, what happened there? Shouldn't there be more numbers involved? I mean, that seems like a, a very small number, doesn't it? I mean, just, that'd be just a few more than we got in this room. It's very, very, very small numbers. But you see, God was doing something. And he, moved by his Spirit, falling on those 120 on the day of Pentecost, and through the preaching of the gospel, to begin to grow that kingdom. And it grew from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, even to the point where you heard the gospel and were saved. Amen? So this, this kingdom, like a tree, started very, very small. It started in the first century through the, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now it has grown and grown and grown and grown. And you're a part of this kingdom. And, and you have brothers and sisters all over this world who are in the same tree you are in. Amen? Because the kingdom of God has grown and will continue to grow. Rejoice 
in the growth of the kingdom of God. That's one of the reasons I love talking about missions and I love uh, being a part of, of going on mission trips and funding missionaries and funding mission trips and praying for missionaries because we're part of seeing the kingdom grow. More and more people getting saved and coming to rest in the branches of the kingdom. And so rejoice in the growth of the kingdom. Listen, you can't find the kingdom of Babylon anymore. There's no, there's no Babylon ruling and reigning. I mean, you can tra- Iraq traces back to I get all that, but, but, but there's no Babylonian kingdom anymore. The Egyptian kingdom doesn't have near the power it had in ancient times where it was one of the most powerful kingdoms on the face of the planet. The Roman Empire is no longer in existence. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God, it just keeps marching on. Amen? Just keeps marching on. And that's what we want to walk away with from chapter 17. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. People are faithful, people are unfaithful. But God keeps working out his plan of redemption because he is faithful and he is full of grace and mercy and love. We should rejoice in the growth of the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.